Welcome back to the Maroon Weekly. It is Saturday, November 9th, and we are at the conclusion of sixth week. As always, I'm Ron. I'm Joanna. I'm Matthew. I'm Isaac. I'm Ruth. I'm Austin. And we have new mics. I hope you guys can tell. We've got quite a few stories to cover today, so let's just jump straight into it. Isaac, you got, you've got a story on DU, right? Right. So as of this past Monday, the Chicago Police Department was investigating a reported sexual assault alleged to have occurred at the Delta Upsilon Fraternity House on Saturday, according to police and university officials. All of the undergraduate and graduate students received an email on Sunday by the university's dean of students and the Title IX coordinator that said that a student on Saturday night was reportedly sexually assaulted at a party at 5714 South Woodlawn Avenue, the fraternity house of DU. And this was reported to Chicago Police and the University of Chicago Police Department. The email said that the offender was an unknown male. So when did this happen? So, uh, CPD officer Jessica Alvarez said that the incident occurred at around 11.30 p.m. on Saturday. Chicago police arrived at a nearby hospital around 1 a.m. in response to calls about the incident. The university does not officially recognize fraternities or sororities. How did DU respond? So, although the university does not officially recognize fraternities or sororities, the executive committee of the Chicago chapter of Delta Upsilon claimed that the Chicago branch held a private event from 10 to 1.30 a.m. that followed both FCS and fraternity policies governing social events, as outlined by their code of conduct on the night in question. They are stating that no Delta Upsilon brothers were involved in the assault. They are in contact with the survivor and will continue to cooperate with the international fraternity and any local police or university investigation. Joanna, you got a related story, right? So the student government hosted a town hall sec- on sexual misconduct on Wednesday, October the 30th, as a forum for students to discuss the results of the recent campus climate survey with administrators. Administrators released the results of the climate survey in a campus-wide email on October the 15th. According to the survey's findings, over 40% of UChicago students have experienced some form of sexual harassment. University administrators rejected a call to recognize fraternities, stated that most sexual assaults occur in first six weeks of a student's first year and answer student questions about sexual misconduct at UChicago. So the Title IX office previously held a meeting on climate surveys results on October the 21st. However, student government's executive slate expressed their displeasure over the results that meeting in a statement of that meeting in a statement, emphasizing that despite the university's decision to not recognize fraternities, they would work toward a, the full recognition of Greek organizations. In keeping with the theme of discussing serious topics, Ruth, you've got a story of a talk that happened at the Smart Museum, right? That's right. So on October 29th, the Posen Family Center for Human Rights and the Smart Spitler Center for Academic Inquiry organized an event discussing police violence, corruption, and power at the Smart Museum. The event's panel was made up of Trina Reynolds-Tyler, member of the Invisible Institute and a graduate student at the Harris School of Public Policy, Damon Williams, co-founder of the Let Us Breathe Collective, and Craig Futterman, clinical law professor at the University of Chicago Law School and civil rights attorney. Their discussion was moderated by Reuben Miller, an assistant professor in the School of Social Service Administration. The panel discussed how police function as a state monopoly on violence and the effect of that presence on people in heavily policed areas, 
especially in Chicago's south and west sides. The panelists began by considering how closeness with a group of people can affect how social scientists can study that group. Although proximity is often perceived as a bias, the panelists argued that the lived experiences of researchers can give them a unique framework for asking questions of the groups they belong to. Damon Williams spoke about being threatened by a police officer when he was 19 and discussed the effects of living in hyper-policed spaces. Living in such areas can encourage the construction of different realities for people in those spaces, which in turn lead to a perception of those same realities through harm responses. Williams emphasized that the association between criminality and blackness has been deeply embedded into the logic of this country. The panel also pointed out that the existence of police prevents communities from dealing with their own violence, escalating dangerous situations. They also questioned the statistical effectiveness of the police in performing their supposed function. Finally, the panel turned to the possibility of an abolitionist world, considering historical successes and constructive programs. Panelists suggested that solutions to police violence involve building communities and eliminating artificial scarcity of resources and land. Shifting gears a little bit to a topic that isn't quite as heavy, the University of Chicago announced on Tuesday that they are working on a deal that will transfer ownership of the Yerkes Observatory to the Yerkes Future Foundation. The observatory, which houses the world's largest refracting telescope, was opened in 1897, but closed off from the public last October. So what is the Yerkes Future Foundation? Well, it's a group comprised of residents from Williams Bay, which is the neighborhood where the Yerkes Observatory is based. And the group was formed in an effort to reopen the observatory to the public. So what exactly are the Yerkes Future Foundation's plan for the observatory? According to a statement released by the YFF, it plans on restoring the observatory's buildings and telescopes, reopening the observatory to visitors, and setting up educational programs for students, astronomers, astrophysicists, and others. Do we know of any other developments between the university and YFF? Yes, the transfer of ownership has partially been held up by a letter that has been written by the observatory's benefactor, Charles Yerkes, which indicated that the ownership of the observatory could revert back to his heirs if the university ever decides to close it. Uh, Also, Save Yerkes, a student group that has been advocating for the university to save the observatory, wrote in a statement to the Maroon that they appreciate the progress that has been made with the YFF, but are eager to see more concrete movement. And then finally, we've got a light story from Matt uh, about ramen, right? Yeah. If any of you guys have ever been to Chinatown, you may have eaten at the certain restaurant called Strings. Uh, It's a fairly small restaurant that caters specifically towards one thing, and that is ramen. And recently, we have gotten news that Strings plans to open a location on 53rd Street near the Kimbark Plaza area, where we already have restaurants like Leona's or The Sit-Down. So Strings is mainly well-known for, as I mentioned before, ramen. And in particular, they have one thing called the Monster Hell Ramen Challenge. They have five levels of hell ramen that in, um, that increase in spiciness with the level. And if you can finish the spiciest level, level five, then they not only pay for your meal, which is about $25 at that level, uh, you get a free $50 dif- gift card for strings as well as a free t-shirt. On the other hand, their Hell Ramen Challenge is notoriously hard to complete with ghost peppers being put in at level three. And at level five, they include scorpion peppers, which overtook ghost peppers as the world's hottest pepper um, at over 2 million Scoville heat units. For comparison, 
Ghost peppers have about 1,041,000 Scovell heat units on average, and that's already 400 times hotter than Tabasco sauce. So don't take this challenge if you're not very, very confident. They make you sign a waiver. I'm about it. <laughs> I guess you could say the ramen is so good that uh, there's no ramen there left. Boo. <laughs> we'll give you a pass because it's your birthday, but boo. <laughs> Guys, it's uh, Rom's birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. Uh, actually, I lied. Austin has a story. <laughs> Austin, what's up? <laughs> so, uh, David Liang, who was a class rep for the class of 2022 last year, has started an independent think tank to kind of review and oversee student government and their various initiatives. So, this RSO is called Campus Policy Research Institute. Um, and it's funded, you know, at the student level by the University of Chicago's Democracy Initiative. And basically, they plan on being an independent source of information on initiatives regarding SG itself or, you know, initiatives that SG is pursuing. Um, their first task at hand is to research into the viability of making SG an independent nonprofit organization, separating it from the university, as well as doing their own independent research on the state of mental health on campus. What would making an SG a nonprofit organization mean? Uh, so CPIR, that's Campus Policy Research Institute, says the inspiration for this line of research is because of the independent student government organizations of Stanford University and uh, University of California, Berkeley. Essentially, it separates it administratively from the university such that the university donates to this independent, like legalized entity of student government as a nonprofit their annual budget, and then SG from there has complete autonomy in terms of how spending goes, both in a legal sense and in a practical sense. CPIR says its long-term goals are to aim to use quantitative measures in a nonpartisan, non-political way to help people arrive at informed conclusions about SG initiatives and the likes. Um, long-term, again, they're hoping that they're a source of authority on campus for anything related to student government initiatives. Uh, Liang says that CPIR is uniquely positioned to connect with our students and conduct research that they care about, as opposed to studies that the administration has done on campus issues over the past couple months, um, and they specifically are calling out the recent campus climate survey. Liang believes that sensitive topics can get skewed data when they're collected by the administration. CPIR expects to publish their initial project reports on student government independence and campus mental health late next quarter. All right, that's all we have for you guys this week. Again, I'm Rom. I'm Joanna. I'm Matthew. I'm Isaac. I'm Lee. I'm Austin. Music for the Weekly is produced by Andrew Dietz, Aaron Senden, and Kenny Tabit LaVega. Thank you to The Logan Cage for the awesome mics. And be sure to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And also the Chicago Maroons Instagram. You can see all of our links in short descriptions of every podcast on our stories whenever they get dropped. Have a wonderful Sunday.